I started to get really suicidal and just was convinced that I wasn't going to make it out of this life without killing myself. And just that process of realizing that those thoughts are not you and they're not ingrained into you. And it seems like the answer was really within, that I had to allow myself to actually feel. So they talked to me a lot about ego, how they weren't trying to be special. They weren't trying to be unique. They were just making tattoos and that was enough. I want to compare myself to myself. I want to be a better version of myself than I was yesterday. My name is Steph Bastian. In my 10 years on the road, I've met many unique characters in the tattoo business, and they all have one thing in common, incredible stories. Stories of past times, personal growth, priceless experience, and of course, bizarre happenings. I want to share those stories with you. This is Tattoo Tales. What's up, buddy? How are you, my friend? Good, you? I'm good. I'm exactly where you left me. <laughs> I'm still in oh. France. Are you in France again? Yeah, man. No, I'm still here. I never left. Oh, yeah, you're just uh, in that little beach town you went to, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been locked in this apartment for eight weeks. Jeez. It's like fucking oh. house arrests, man. It's okay. You know? Man, I, I think I'm in such a great place down here for this. Yeah, absolutely. You got space. Like I, you got, yeah. yeah, our beaches are closed, but I mean, even still, we're just surrounded by nature and you can walk around and uh, fuck, people in the city seems uh, rough. Yeah, I'm man. glad I got out of France. <laughs> How are you hanging in there? You still, you're doing all your daily routines and... Yeah, I mean, you know me. I'm, I have actually the, you know... The problem to slow down so you know my days go very quick because i stuffed them with stuff you know yeah so I'm, I'm actually trying to make time you know to relax but you know me so i'm doing a bunch of those interviews you know the project i try to work out twice a day and uh i got my yoga app which is super cool what's happening it's called allo moves cool they have all sort of like strength functional training uh, Pilates, you know, recovery, fascia conditioning. I was talking today with a friend of mine, which is in Malaysia, I think, or Sing Singapore. And uh, he does uh, jiu-jitsu, so, and he's locked at home. And I said, dude, you know, take the chance. I'm doing this stuff, which, you know, when you go back to jiu-jitsu, which is what I was doing before the injury, it's stuff that you never make time to train, like mobility workout, you know? Yeah. So, Dude, you know, I, I've been using an app called Center. Okay. It's from uh, Chris Hem Hemsworth, the guy that plays Thor. It's all of his personal trainers and his nutritionists and everybody. And so there's tons of different exercises. There's yoga, there's Pilates, there's strength training, there's body weight exercises, there's uh, like different diets, recipes to follow. It's fucking awesome. There's meditations. It, wow. It's got everything in there. It's crazy. So I've been doing that. I did a... A thousand. Well, I got the. I saw the burpee I, stuff, huh? Yeah, but I tweaked my elbows. I got like some pretty bad tendonitis in my elbows. I didn't make it to a thousand, so I got nine hundred and ten. 
My good friend, she's a very good personal trainer, always tells me the improvement of your workout is directly proportional to the attention that you spend to the small muscles. Rotator cuffs and stuff like that, you know? So that's why I really like this app because I'm trying to do a sort of complete stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. So then it's kind of balanced. You have one day cardio, one day stretching, one day, you know? There's actually another one I signed up to do. This is like the time for checking out all these things. There's another guy that uh, specializes in in a program for guys over 40 as our testosterone starts to lower. So he gives you uh, like a diet plan and it focuses on foods that boost your testosterone and cutting out foods that increase your, what is it? Increase the opposite. uh, Estrogen. Estrogen. So like cutting out sugars and cutting out, uh, you know, dairy and all these things that are supposed to increase your estrogen. And then he's got these exercises that are really, really, really short and pretty intense, but that are all geared towards guys over 40. So I've been going back and forth between that center app and that. Nice. And, uh, yeah, I think as long as you do something, you know, I mean, as long dude, as you I've been active as fuck and it's great. I'm getting yeah. strong. I've lost a bunch of weight and nice. getting stronger. Nice. Are you good. there by yourself? Yeah. You got, yeah. You, got, you got the dog or not? Uh, Julia's got the dog. I get the dog okay. later today. How is that we, going? We trade back and forth. How is that going? It's been uh, it. It's good now. When I first got back, it was really it was really hard that I had this part of myself that was just intent on me being miserable. Yeah. Like almost like a shadow part of myself that I think we all have these tendencies, but for some reason it's intense with me but i realized that it it was just intent on me being miserable and discontent and eventually it was intent on me like killing myself because i i could just see that i wasn't gonna make it out of my life without taking myself out of it because i just kept feeling like i was repeating these same patterns over and over and thinking that i had it figured out and ending up in the same spot so eventually i i kind of snapped out of it and i started thinking about what what it was that I had in Julia that I was leaning on her for, that I was looking for in her, that I needed to find in myself. And it turned out that a lot of that was like security and stability, uh, things that I never felt very capable of on my own, that I got a lot from her, which I never realized when we were together. And it was a catalyst for a lot of really good changes. I realized that I had to very intently take care of myself uh similar to you know to your morning routines i i need those and i had started to resent them because i was like the routines. I don't, yeah I, I was just like i don't want to have to live on a program this is ridiculous that i have to do these things to be okay but when i do when i did do those things i did feel okay but then eventually that other part of me would be like you don't need to do this this is ridiculous you know that's like, the, you that's the ego. yeah so i i just realized i have to do these things and they make me feel really good i've been feeling really great and then i realized that julia's been my greatest teacher i wouldn't have gone through this period i cried for three days straight like i didn't realize it was possible to cry as long as i cried like just sobbing heaving literally crying be like what the f- is are you fucking kidding me how am i still crying this is crazy it definitely wasn't just about julia it felt way older it, like some of it went down so far into my guts 
that felt like stuff from childhood, maybe stuff from like generations of my family. And it all just came out and I had always avoided it. And I, and none of that would have happened if, if we had stayed together, if I didn't have this opportunity to, to really experience what it was and then to find these things in me. So yeah, everything's been really good now. That's good, man. Such like a, sounds like a very intense process of regenerating. Oof. You know? Yeah, it was. It was it's very. Good, it's good. I think being sober too helped a lot. I've been meditating every day. I'm almost 50 days of meditation. A lot of breathing into my belly, and I had started feeling like where I was tense, and all the tension would go into my chest, and I wouldn't breathe into my belly. So I started meditating. Just let me see all these thoughts and feelings as separate myself. So I was able to see these these emotions come and allow them to come and allow myself to feel them for the first time in my life and it was fucking intense and it was so beautiful. I was completely broken, but afterwards I felt completely free in a different way too. Cause I feel with the acceptance that I have to live with these routines that I have to, you know, do these things in the morning and that I have to take care of myself and what I eat and, and use my body. So I'm not so much in my head. Everything's been way better. It's funny how we're all in the same boat, you know, because everybody's issues even if they're connected to things of your own personal history which could be your events in your childhood your family whatever but they all come from the same place the voice inside that is looking for validation and is looking for somebody or something to tell you that you're good something or somebody to tell you that things are under control and it's stable and then when you really peel the layers and you go through something like you're doing everybody have their own way you get to the point where you're like, oh, it's just me, you know? And I already have that stuff in me and I don't need it to look it outside because anyway, it's it's an illusion. It just, um, it's just, it's a game that you're losing from the start if you rely on having those things from external stuff. You external know? sources, yeah, yeah, totally. My friend told me this, give yourself validation because you can only give what you already have. Mm-hmm. And that stuff is makes so much fucking sense because if I ask you ten dollars, if you don't have them, you can't give them to me. If you give oh. it to them, if you're giving me that ten dollars, it means you have them. So yeah. the validation, you know, that you're looking from a, a partner, for example, a romantic partner, then you're like, wait a second, what what would she give me? That okay, let's give that to myself. Steph, you're good, you know, you've done it. And you're like, oh, I just gave it to myself. That means I had it all way along. You know, and it's, it's yeah. such a simple thing, but with such powerful implications that you're like, oh. Things that don't necessarily come naturally, we can strengthen those. You yeah. know, like if you can do pull-ups, you can train yourself to be able to do pull-ups. And these are like emotional pull-ups or spiritual pull-ups. Let me ask you one thing, Jason. Can you remember the very first time that you saw a tattoo? Even when you're like a little baby or something, even if you didn't know what it was. What's your first recollection of a tattoo you saw? Oh, man. The, fir- the first thing that comes to mind, is, but I wasn't a kid. It was uh, a guy that was at a bus station, I think in Boston, and he had like biomechanical kind of skeleton hand tattooed on his hand. And I remember being fascinated by that. But I think I was probably in college at that point. But my mom used to draw tattoos on me as a kid. She never wanted me to get a tattoo. And I wanted to get a, a, my ear pierced. She made me sign a contract that said I would never get a tattoo. Because <laughs> <laughs> she went funny. to school with some kid that used to draw on himself with his pens. And she hated this kid, Carl Baumgartner. 
<laughs> she didn't want me to be like him. It's funny the things but, you remember forever, like that name. Yeah, totally. Your mom is an artist, yeah? Yeah, my mom's an artist, and uh, my biological dad was an artist, too. She went to go take life drawing classes, and I guess they started having an affair from there. That's where I came from. Nice. Yeah. Son of artists. And yeah. uh, where are you from originally? I was born in Connecticut, which is right above New York. A uh, little town called, uh, I was born in Norwalk, but then grew up in Trumbull and Bridgeport. As I got older, I hated Connecticut so much that I never said I was from Connecticut. I always said that I was from San Francisco because that's where I identified as home. But now <laughs> I've accepted the fact that I was born in Connecticut and that it doesn't mean anybody, anything to anybody. It was just my own thing that I hated Connecticut. When did you get, start getting close to tattoos? Well, I think that was probably part of it. Like, I don't know why my mom used to draw tattoos on me as a kid, like at the beach. I remember having like a skull on my belly. And so I guess I started getting interested around then. And then in high school, I got into like hardcore music. And I became a, a born again Christian when I was in high school and got into like Christian punk rock and hardcore. And a lot of those guys had tattoos. So I started getting fascinated with it. Um, what kind of tattoos did they have? They had normal tattoos or like Christian tattoos? No, they were, I mean, there there was a guy named Sid Stankovitz in uh, Southern California that was doing a lot of the tattoos on these guys. And he was did American traditional stuff. So they had normal tattoos. They might have something to do with Christianity or Christ, but they weren't uh, explicitly Christian. Some were. A lot of American traditional stuff. Neutral, classic stuff. Yeah. And when did you start a tattoo? Started tattooing in 98 professionally, but I probably started an apprenticeship in 97, I think. I graduated high school in 96 and then went to school in Boston for half a year. Got my first tattoos while I was there and, uh, and got obsessed with it. I didn't get tattooed in Boston because it was illegal. I got tattooed in Austin, Texas. And, uh, and then I got one in Connecticut. By the end of my first uh, semester, I was like, oh, I think I want to become a tattooer. And I was super Christian. So one of my buddies had a starter kit that he had from Huck Spaulding. And he said that he prayed to God and God told him he didn't want him to have it. But <laughs> <laughs> so he, he gave it to me. And then I prayed and I was like, God, can I do tattoos? I was like, fuck yeah, man, go do some tattoos. <laughs> so Sweet. I started tattooing my roommates. Uh and then I got an apprenticeship shortly after that back in Connecticut. I guess your mom was happy. So, yeah, I had to talk to my mom and be like, Mom, I can't. Uh, this contract we signed, this isn't going to work. She understood. She's pretty old now, so she always forgets what tattoos I have and don't. She's always grabbing me and being like, what is this? Is this a new one? Is this a new one? <laughs> yeah, my mom does the same. She's like, another one? And they're like, yeah. Mom, I had this for 12 years. Oh, <laughs> what about that? Yeah. Did you yeah. tattoo your mom? I did. It was a fucking hard experience. She art directed me the whole time. Oh, the worst. Yeah, and she got a mediocre tattoo because of it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you tell her? Yeah, totally. I was surprised that she got it, though. Nice. What kind of stuff does she does? I think I remember she, you were telling me, I think when we were sharing a, a guest house in, in Denmark, she does watercolors and stuff. She did sculptures. She would make these little things called sill sitters that would sit on windowsills. It'd be like fat people 
and their legs would hang off. And uh, she made these little pie sculptures that like a bird or a fat woman that you would put on top of a pie that would release the steam. She did watercolors. She did children's illustration books. Uh, she illustrated the three little pigs that got published. She did like freelance work. Uh, now she paints a bunch of like discarded wood fences and like carves them into mermaids and Christmas trees. And she does oil painting. She's a, uh, a bit of a yeah, she's just got a creative soul. Yeah. Nice, nice. And uh, so where did you go after the, after the um, apprenticeship? Did you start moving around? Did you stay there for a while? So yeah, I didn't, I didn't make it through the apprenticeship. I was paying 5,000, I think, to do the apprenticeship This was at a place called Studio Z in New Haven, Connecticut. I think it's closed now. Z hated the fact that I was a Christian, which was understandable. It was a know-it-all. Uh, I was really, really zealous. And Were you preaching uh, when you were there? Like, oh, you so should. one of the reasons that I wanted to tattoo was I thought, you know, I thought tattooers were the coolest. So I thought if I started doing that, I could tell people about Jesus when I was tattooing them because they'd have to sit there and they would think I was cool. And I just thought Jesus was so cool. I Eventually, all of this changed. but How to lose time, customers. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he was a grumpy old tattooer. But I learned how to make needles. I scrubbed the floors. I did all this stuff. He was really angry old man. He went on a diet and told the shop that nobody in the shop could eat anything that smelled good. And uh, one day we all ordered a pizza and we went downstairs into the basement. It was freezing to eat the pizza. And we're eating the pizza, the, the bell rings upstairs and we go upstairs to help the customers. And while we're all doing that, Z stopped tattooing, went downstairs, took the pizza and dumped it into the trash with all the fucking bloody paper towels and all the flux paper towels. Went back upstairs and started tattooing again. I think two people quit that day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I didn't make it too much longer after that. And then I started waiting tables at a Mexican restaurant and then went to a music festival in Illinois where I met a guy named Dan Wyant, who was a singer of a band called Zayo. And I got an opportunity to, I bullshitted my way into an opportunity to go to Pennsylvania. And I got to work there at a place called Animus. And that's where I really started to learn, started to do some professional tattoos. But with Z, I got much more of a history. Although he, did, he didn't fill me in on any of the history, but he was connected with Spiderweb. Uh, he was really talented. He really knew what he was doing. There was no bullshit. He wasn't doing anything trendy. He was just doing tattoos and he taught me how to you know, make needles. Other than that, he really didn't tell me anything. Like when I did my first tattoo, It was because Jerry had called in sick and there were customers and I didn't even know how to set up a machine. He was like, you're going to do your first tattoo. And I ended up doing a skull on somebody. He kept 100% of the money. And, but then when I went to Pennsylvania, I got the opportunity and it was really fun. But I think that Tom, the guy that was teaching me, was pretty much self-taught. So he didn't have uh, real information to share. Who were the people you were looking up to in, the, in those times? Who are like the gods, the gods of tattooing? I think, it, I think I only had two. I think it was Eric Merrill and Bill Capobianco. These really airbrush, chrome kind of stuff. Uh, those were my two idols. But then like, you know, at conventions, I would see other stuff. There was Chris Dingwell, 
So this was all East Coast. I just never happened to get exposed to what was happening in New York at New York Adorned with O'Donnell or Rubendahl. I, I had no exposure to that. It was all very new school. There was Harry Kruger. Harry Kruger did some really amazing stuff. But that was it. And then, I don't know. I really, I was around like, I was interested in Guy Aitchison. I was interested in John Clue, Aaron Kane. But my two focal points were Joe Capabianco and Eric Merrill. <laughs> it's funny how, you know, when you look back, which is a normal, you know, it's a the trajectory, but when you look at how, when you started and when you're at now, for example, and the stuff you were looking at, the people you wanted to be like, and, you know, and it changed so much in 20 yeah. years or something. And you're like, wow. You know, I started, believe it or not, with photorealism. Yeah. So it's funny how it changed. And then the near tradition and then a new school and then blah, blah, blah. We just changed so much over time. And I think as you go through the craft, you try to, at least in my head, you start to explore all the different avenues in it and hopefully come up with your own mix of these things as opposed to just staying pigeonholed into one thing, which I think is, uh, while it works for people, especially it seems right now, it just seems a bit shallow to me. Yeah, especially because it's your own journey, you know? And I think that tattooing is just but a reflection of yourself somehow. Obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a service industry, you know, you do, you do what people ask you, but even the way you do those things, it change because you change. You know, so it's yeah. hard to sometimes think uh, that you can be exactly the same person you were 20 years ago, you know. So at some point, I guess, that you left the Christian party, right? Yeah, so I ended up moving to California. This was probably like 99, I think, or 2000. I was commuting from Huntington Beach to Venice. Those guys were all really good. They were connected to Robert Benedetti. Baby Ray would come into the shop. and It was really cool. But... At some point, I had kind of like an emotional breakdown one night. I had some friends that came and played at the Warp Tour, and my girlfriend and I went, and we got a hotel room, and we all partied that night. And then I got back to the hotel room that night and just like burst into tears. It really freaked me out. But in the back of that shop, there was a business card that I'd seen on the wall, and it just had like a black esoteric symbol on it, and it just said uh, Dennis, I can't remember his last name, but uh, said Therapy. So I called that guy and it was awesome. He was tattooed. His hands were tattooed. His throat was tattooed. He had a shaved head and a silver goatee and black rimmed glasses. And it was so cool to go see a therapist or a psychologist and tattoos were not an issue at all because he totally understood that part. And he started to challenge my beliefs, my belief system because I was really beating the shit out of myself over everything over any like sexual ideas and like all of that was just so twisted in my head from Christianity. And uh, he was like, just, you know, it's normal that you want to fuck everything. You're like 20 years old. That's just natural. You should do these things and just maybe give yourself room to think that it's not true. So one night I went out and smoked a joint on the beach and I looked out at the, the ocean and realized that for however long that was, the five or six years that I was in it, that I had this idea that I thought how that ocean was made, that I knew the person that made it, that I understood it. And I looked at it and was like, wow, look how there's like a whole world under there that I would never begin to understand that is just so miraculous and beautiful. And, and I don't need to understand it. That night I, I said, I was walking away from it and, uh, 
And then I got really, really, really angry with it. All my Christian tattoos on me got crossed out and modified. And um, I remember, I think, is there you that has like a Playboy bunny or something on Jesus? Is there you? Yeah, it's that classic, uh, you know, Jesus with the crown of thorns with his, yeah. his head's a little turned. And I blacked his eyes out and I put pink bunny ears on him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But that was such a great moment in my life when I decided to walk away. That was a very significant time for me. And seeing Dennis was a really significant time for me. He showed me a lot of stuff that had gone on in my life that I was never conscious of and ways in which I was dealing with the world uh, subconsciously just through what I had learned as a child. And it was the first time I felt like I actually kind of woke up and got to experience life on life's terms. It must be so liberating the fact that eventually you can accept the fact that you feel a certain way and think, this is okay, there's nothing wrong with me. Yeah, I, th I, th I think I'm still working on that. Yeah, like everybody, but especially <laughs> yeah. with that, with that you know, uh, belief system, uh, at least the way you were involved with, you know, so much guilt over whatever, being a teenager, yeah. you know? Yeah, man. And, you know, like, I, so I'm writing this book now, and a lot of it has to do with that stuff. And I looked at other people, even the people that led me to that, it was through a youth group, and how those people weren't nearly as extreme as I was when I took it. When, when it got me, I just went like 100%. And there were other people that, you know, got to experience that belief, but it didn't affect every aspect of their lives or the way that they viewed everybody. When I took it, everybody I met was potentially going to hell and I had to try to save them and everything I did. Like I used to picture Jesus in one corner of the room and Satan in the other corner of the room. I'm like 19 years old when I whacked off, like Jesus would just start crying really softly. He'd be like, so sad. Oh my God. Oh my God. It was so fucked up, man. <laughs> So and, and and the devil was like, yeah, beat it, beat it. Yeah, the devil was just like, got you, motherfucker. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it was very liberating when I got out of it. And then, uh, yeah, and I wondered what that would mean, like if I if that meant that I was going to become a really sinful, bad person and do all sorts of bad things because I didn't have this moral compass to follow. But say la vie. C'est la vie. And when did you start traveling? Because, you know, you, now you're a bit more stable, uh, even within the, 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 the traveling, you, you still do. But, you know, at some point in your life, you've been moving around a lot. I even remember yeah. a, a sort of blog that you had on the website of uh, Tattoo Artist Magazine or something where you do like yeah. entries, right? So when did you start that? Well, I started traveling when I was still with Melissa, my ex-wife, I remember saying to her that one day I wanted to go travel around the world. And uh, I realized that that wasn't going to happen with her, but I didn't do anything about that. And the work that I was doing at the time was very unique. I don't think there was really anybody in the States doing what I was doing. Uh, and it kind of looks like what they do a lot in France now. It was really artistic and like free because I didn't have any foundation. A lot of uh, like street art influence, fine art influence, modern art influence, illustration stuff. Um, but I had a guy over in Holland who sent me an email. I got published in a couple magazines and a guy over in Holland offered to fly me out there to tattoo him. 
So I was like, wow, this is amazing. So that was my first international trip was to go tattoo this guy. And then after that, I just got really interested. So I started traveling a lot throughout the years. But then when my uh, when Melissa and I split up, I was just about to turn 30 and it was 2010. And I decided that that was my chance to go travel around the world. So then I left San Francisco and just traveled for like two and a half years. I spent about a year in South America. And then I went to uh, Japan and Thailand, Vietnam, and then to Australia for like five months and then went to Europe. I guess we probably met the second time I was there. And uh, yeah, Nepal. And it was great. But then at some point, I just got really, I had a really hard time living out of a bag. What's your, let's say, best and worst memories from these years of traveling? The first thing that pops into my head was uh, New Year's Eve in Nepal, in poker in Nepal. And Somehow through tattooing, I wasn't, I'd made a couple of tattoos when I was there, but I just, some guy in a bookstore came up to me and said hello and introduced himself and told me that his cousin was a tattoo artist in town. They were called the Enfield Troopers, World Enfields, these old motorcycles that are real popular in India. And they kind of took me in and were super cool and I ended up spending New Year's Eve with them smoking a joint and I look over and there's like this 80 or 90 year old Nepalese grandmother just looking at me with like a toothless smile and we were under fireworks. I think that was one of the most beautiful experiences of the trip. And the difficulties of the trip lasted a long time. I ended up taking a girl with me on that trip and we broke up along the way and dealing with that breakup on my own without any friends to lean on really ingrained itself in me and uh it was like a like a ghost that just followed me around for the majority of that of that trip so that loneliness and uh i don't know almost like being afraid of my own thoughts kind of stuck with me but i numbed all that out with lots of cocaine and alcohol <laughs> and <laughs> weed as um, you do and um, one thing that um, always, you know, uh, that became evident very quickly, with, you know, since I met you the, the first times in Europe and stuff, is that you are, you know, you're a tattoo artist at the, on, on your own trajectory, but, but you have a very developed artistic sensitivity, which expressed not necessarily all in this medium. I, this is my, my view on you, that you have this necessity of express and record, register, and in, interpret, you know, what goes on around you on different levels. And you do it, not necessarily tattooing is its own medium, but, you know, you do illustration, your sketchbooks, your travel sketchbooks, I remember, you know, photography, writing, you are an avid reader. So how, how does that feel for you? How, because obviously that's part of you, that's your identity. How do you feel about this? Yeah. I had, so when I first started tattooing without the history, without the base of, of history and realizing that I was building on a tradition that had been formed before or realizing that it was a craft, I approached it more as an art. So I used it as a means of expression and it wasn't any different for me than 
than working in my sketchbook or or painting. It just seemed like uh, another means of self-expression. But then when I when I got turned on to the history of tattooing, which happened from this guy Zach Johnson. I was at a birthday party for Henry Lewis and this other tattooer in San Francisco, who's a friend of mine now. We were at his party, and this guy Zach walks up to me, and he's like, "Are you Jason Tyler Grace?" And I'm like, "Yeah, what's up, man? Nice to meet you." He's like, "Jason Tyler Grace," and he just kept saying my name over and over. And I realized that he was fucking with me, and I was like, "What's up, man?" You know, and uh. He's like, I just want you to know, I hate everything that you've ever done. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I'm like, fuck. Thank you, bro. <laughs> yeah. Was um, he drunk or just? Yeah, he was puke? wasted. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> a very uh, heavy statement. I know, and it, it really hit me. But then I went and I talked to him a couple of days later. We, we actually worked at the same shop in different areas. I went and I talked to him, and I was like, Zach, what's up, man? Like, what? what was that the other night? And he was like, there's a ton of stuff you don't know and, and you're not going about it right. You should be working in a shop. And he was right on a lot of it. And I realized after talking to him that I didn't know a shit ton about tattooing and that I had gained a following based on me covering up for these things. So then I started to set out on finding out what I was missing. So I started traveling a lot around the States and going to work with like Tony DeRigo and Mark Warnick and, and Jet out in Rochester and just picking up all the information. And then there was a big separation that developed between making art and tattooing and understanding that tattooing was a craft and a service that we were providing people. And that wasn't necessarily the spot for creativity. And then here's, <laughs> this is another moment when it really hit me. This is before Zach. This is when I was moving to San Francisco from Newport Beach. And I had started doing this really experimental stuff where people would bring me these objects that they really liked, whether it was a record or something that their grandparents had given them or whatever artifacts they had around their house that they really enjoyed. And we would lay them out on a table. And then I would just start tattooing them without any drawing or anything, just using those things as inspiration. And uh, some of the stuff came out cool. Some of it was fucking horrible. But I found out about Grimy around that time. And I had sent him a, this box that I made with a collection of artwork and everything. And I sent it to him and with a letter in it. And I set up a meeting with him. And I went in and he fucking ripped me apart. I was on the verge of tears by the time that I left there. I would imagine it would burn in front of you or something. Oh my God, it was, it was, it was brutal. And uh, I actually took a little break from tattooing at that point and went and worked at Urban Outfitters <laughs> until <laughs> I showed up really drunk one day and threw up on the train tracks out right out front of the shop. And I was like, I gotta go back to tattooing. But these things started to really build up and I started to see the separation between the two. I think I got really stiff in tattooing because I started looking for the correct way to do it, which I had never considered before. And then this division started to intensify and really started to worry whether I was an artist or whether I was a tattooer. And I don't, I don't think it's as prevalent now, but at the time, art fag was like a really big thing. You know, like if you were an artist outside of tattooing or if you had artistic tendencies, all the bro guys would be like, oh, you fucking art fag, man. You know, fucking bringing art into 
tattooing. And whether it's through peer pressure or the idea of being excluded, uh, that might have been part of it. But I, it was also this genuine yearning and realization that I didn't know how to put in like a fat line. I had to sculpt everything and that I didn't really know how to pack in color and that everything that I had developed in my style was as a way to skirt around these things. But at some point, I like later on, years later, I ended up moving into a an artist's warehouse in Oakland, California, when I was working at Idle Hand. And that was with the intent purpose of going and finding out whether or not I was an artist and if that was separate from tattooing. So I went and I lived with 16 people in this modified warehouse, all of them working artists, all of them mainly starving artists. I saw them all struggling to make a living. And I really realized how fortunate and blessed I was to have this this craft to focus on and to use my talents for. And I dove fully into that and I didn't really make much work outside of tattooing. And uh, over the past couple of years, I've, you know, I've been tattooing now 21 years, I think. And these other parts of me are so natural. I can't help but draw. Like during this quarantine time, I have not done one single thing related to tattooing and I'm perfectly okay with that. Tattooing is where I go to exercise my craft, and the joy of that is very gratifying. But it's not where I find any sort of uh, self-expression or or the voice for whatever is inside of me that needs to be expressed. Which is that's what this creative urge is. It's just like yearning for a release. And when I don't allow those things to come out, I. I tend to get toxic. I get really down and I get very stifled. So I have to let these things out. And then there's moments with tattooing where that's all I do. And, and I'll paint tons of tattoo flash or, or imagery. And it's totally gratifying. But if I don't do the writing, if I don't do artwork outside of it, I will implode. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's very healthy to find that separation because Eventually, you know, there are different things and eventually you can actually use both to uh, restore, recover and propel the other form, if that makes sense. You know, yeah. so you, because when there is this separation, it's kind of like, yeah, separation between work and home or something like that. You know, you do tattoos and then when you go into your art form, then you can actually rest your brain from all of that. Yeah. And then the other way around when you have this expression, which I think might be quite intense at time if you approach it that way the artistic expression because it really goes in within your feelings and all of that so i guess when you're done with that you're like blah okay then you can go back to something more predictable so to speak which is that i think it's a good you can you know switch those two worlds and uh, i think it's very healthy so because i've seen i gotta say though i like i look around and i see people that just focus on tattoos and how successful they become and how, you know, how good they are. And I'm totally inspired by that. And I'm a little bit jealous of that. I always wonder what it would be like if that was my one passion that I could just focus on that thing. But that's not my path and I, I can't do that. But I really do admire the people that, that have that in them, you know. Yeah. You know, it's important to be yourself and to follow your own natural tendency. I felt the same regarding either tattooing or regarding other aspects of life, for example, sport. And, uh, you know, I've been, I got into, you know, some martial arts when I was 16, kickboxing, and then I got into a bit of jiu-jitsu and a bit of this, a bit of that. And then 
I always looked up to some friends of mine or people I know that became very good at it. And I'm like, oh, maybe if I would have, you know, if I should. But then you realize that you started there, so you go into it. If you didn't follow it just because you didn't feel like it, you know, otherwise it would have been completely absorbed naturally by it. You, you can't force and decide, oh, I want to be completely absorbed by this. It's just something that you had to feel, you know, to follow. So I, at least I made peace with that feeling in the sense that, okay, if I, if there is something that completely takes my soul and I want to give it all I have, it's because it's natural. You can't force that. So if I didn't follow certain sport patterns or certain whatever that is, it's just because it wasn't me, you know? So I think that yeah. you are, you know, it sounds a bit hippie. You are where you're supposed to be, but I think it's because eventually it's a sort of natural selection that puts you on that path. Otherwise, you would be there if that was what you felt. I agree with that. But it also takes, like, I have to exercise discipline to show up and write every day. So I have to consciously, purposefully make time to do things that I know are important for my mental health, for my creativity. There's only one me. There's only one Steph Bastion. And the things that are naturally ingrained in us are what we have to offer the world. So I would do a disservice if I nullified these parts of me just to focus on tattooing. There's a world full of people that are just focusing on tattooing, but I have something completely different to offer. And I'm very comfortable with that. And I feel some pride in that and some uh, excitement in what I have in the works of hopefully being able to connect to people and share my experiences in the hopes that it can uh, be of some comfort or camaraderie with people who have felt similar things, or, you know? Yeah, we have to honor those natural parts of ourselves. But we also have to exercise some discipline. The way yeah, otherwise, otherwise you, fall, you might fall into the path of less resistance, you know, yeah. and then you, be, you become good at whatever you do. So if you do nothing consistently, you become very Get good. real good at it. Yeah, <laughs> you know I mean? I'm masterful and, at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, black belt. Yeah. And uh, so I saw your, you know, your tattooing specifically changing a lot during the last years, which obviously you started getting in contact with some very good artists, you know, some of the best in the business, working with them. And I guess that, of course, inspired you and, and you learned tricks and, and views and exchange opinions and stuff. How do you think your tattooing changed in the last five to 10 years? Because now I see it more graphic, yeah. more strong. I've been in Argentina and uh, in Chile and in Sao Paulo, meeting those artists down there. So like as I started traveling in South America, through Colombia and Ecuador and Peru, Bolivia, there really wasn't much history anywhere. It's so far away from the books and the history that exists in the United States or the books and the history that exists in Europe or Australia, places that have more privilege, places that have more access to information and supplies. So. In those places, there was a significant lack of history, which was evident in the work that was being made. So then when I got down to Argentina and I went to a shop called Well Done Tattoos with this guy Mariano Castigliani, and uh, he's got Pradanya has been there. And then I met like Naza. I met artists from Chile named Freddy Ampuero and Nishin Hadas. And I met Walter de la Soba from Paraguay. And then eventually met Ivan Sassi and uh, Freddie Leo and all these guys. And their work was so simple and so raw, but they had history. Mariano had traveled 
a lot of them had traveled. Uh, NASA had gone all over. The quality of it was like, whoa, what the fuck? And it's literally at the bottom of the South Americas. You know, it's like, it is so far away. But there was so much passion and so much talent. Everything that they did was against ease. It was against comfort. It was against all of that. So it affected everything that they did. And there was this real significant lack of ego in what they did. And I think that that's part of growing up in one of the poor, you know, in poorer countries and so far away from everything is that the community becomes so important. So they talked to me a lot about ego, how they weren't trying to be special. They weren't trying to be unique. They were just making tattoos and that was enough. And that was a new thing for me because everything up until that point had been very individualistic. Walter said, you know, people in the States and people in Europe, you guys are concerned about getting rich and famous. But us down here, we're in the backyard of the backyard, especially in Paraguay. Nobody gives a fuck about us. We're just trying to put food on our tables. We're not concerned about being special. We're not concerned about making a fortune or being famous. We're just trying to put food on the table. And that was like, what the fuck, man? This is so different from anything that I know. And then I started seeing the work of Ivan Sasi and all these stickers around him and people just talked about him like he was a ghost. He was this really like mythical figure down there. People talked about him with such reverence and mystery. And then getting to meet him and him telling me that, you know, all of the fancy stuff that we do in tattoos, he has no interest in that. He's tattooing so that you can see it in the grave. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's so, I think after he said that to me, I totally stopped adding any bells and whistles. And I started, you know, really thinking about simplifying and that was awesome. But then I think again, I, I kind of lost some of the soul in my stuff by trying to go too simple. But without a doubt, South America was the most significant change and uh, especially significantly those guys. I went back down there to do a group interview with them and just talk about the experience of what it was like learning to tattoo in South America. I, I had never seen anything like it. I saw one Thermofax the entire, like in the whole year that I was there. And I started thinking, man, like all my crutches that I've developed, Jesus, I have so many crutches and I wanted to let go of those. So I decided to move to Costa Rica and you know, put myself in it a little bit and start to feel what it was like, not be able to have such easy access to supplies and not be able to have everything that I had been used to. And I think that that has had some impact on work that I've been making. Especially today, the way the, you know, tattooing is, people are not used to think this way. And uh, no, not everybody, but you know, the, the common trend often, and you can see in social medias and stuff, it's more about the first goal is to get famous. I remember talking with this guy, a friend of mine uh, in Oslo, maybe six years ago or something at a party. He was an apprentice at the time. And we were talking. I was like, so how, how is it going? And the first thing he said was like, he was an apprentice. He was like, oh, you know what? Because blah, blah. Because when I'm going to be famous, I want people to know me for And I was like, wait, 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 wait. You're an apprentice. And the first thing you say is when I'm going to be famous. You know, not when I'm going to learn to use a mag. <laughs> yeah. So that moment really made me realize how often the values are upside down. So it's very important, I think, to, to you know, uh, give voice to this type of message where you bring things back to real, the real priorities yeah. that come first, like these people putting food on the table. 
And yeah, and it happened. And tattooing is just fruit of of the roots. It's a cultural thing. It's it's a cultural phenomenon that we're going through with social media, with Instagram, with with all this marketing. We're losing the ability to look inward, to spend any time in contemplation. We're losing our focus, our attention span. We're totally being manipulated by our phones, purposefully by the people that are making these apps and everything to keep us on there. And it's affecting the way that we view ourselves. So naturally in the Western world with more privilege, we've already been accustomed and programmed to making more money, to providing ourselves with more comforts. Whereas in South America, that has been, or South America or, you know, any country that has less is, is forced to focus more on community and feel more of those things. It's just a different way of living. But social media doesn't care about borders. That's still going over to these places. So you can be 100% certain that there's people in any country that are concerned with becoming social marketers or influencers that that's having on our worldview and our ability to connect with people, our ability to focus on anything for more than a couple of minutes. It's, I, I think it's a tragedy. I, it's, uh, it's fucking heartbreaking. It's, but, a, it's almost a disease. It is. And it's really like we are being manipulated by these things. It takes a lot of effort for me to not be on the phone. I think that like Instagram is amazing for tattooing, but I, I, I can't help but be influenced when I look at it to see, you know, somebody get 4,000 likes on something and compare it to what I got or to see the talent that somebody else has and compare it to myself. But that's not what I want to do. I want to compare myself to myself. I want to be a better version of myself than I was yesterday, not compare myself to, you know, somebody with fucking 50,000 followers. And it's, it's so vapid. It's just so... Ugh. And it's, uh... <laughs> you know, the, cra- the craziest thing, the craziest thing is that as the, ch- the generation change, a generation of customers, there is so much information now out there. And a lot of it, I'm not saying some more, I'm saying a lot of it is not good because it gives you the wrong parameters to make a clear judgment on quality of things. And the problem, in my opinion, which is open to discussion, is that now, you know, Instagram is a, is a reference for quality which is absolutely not, you know? So the thing is, and I'm saying this just because it takes food of, out of the table, you know, money out of pockets of people that are more experienced, more talented. I don't want to say who deserve it more or less. You can't, you can't, you know, say that, but it, it's hard to see when you have somebody that's been chatting for, for a little time with stuff that is okay or you know, good at, at the most, and they have fucking hundreds of thousands of people, you know, praying them. And then there is people that you know that are not even, we're not talking about in the same game or level. It's not even on the same planet, you know, for experience, quality, vision, uh, technique. And obviously they don't, they're not good marketers sometimes because that's not what they focus on and they don't get their recognition. Now, they get the recognition for the people that matter, yes. But at the same time, you have less people walking through the doors of the shop because they get redirected, rerouted. And that, I think, is the most scary thing. I was in Prague working with Scott Ellis, and these American guys came for a tattoo. And then Best guy. Best guy ever. And uh, one guy came for a tattoo and then ended up tattooing all of them, right? And then one of them especially, it was a sort of a collector dude. So he has this tattoo from this guy, from that guy, from the guy. And they're all 
you know, good guys by hot shots on Instagram. And it was like, and you know, this worker, this guy, and the worker, that guy, and the worker, that guy. And they were all, you know, good artists, but the hot shots on Instagram, which means that if you would mention to him, you know, Philip Liu or Michael Rubendahl or Henning Jorgensen, or you had no idea who they are, you know, being a collector. So I was like, oh, there's something wrong here, <laughs> you know, because you get tattooed just by people that have over such and such recognition so that i think is the scary is the scary part redesigning the industry and and then the artists the tattooers are starting to tattoo what is most popular i guarantee that stuff is really popular right now in 10 or 15 years is going to look so dated it's not classic you know it's which it's okay, it, not everything has to be classic, not everything has to do that, but we're existing in this really fast-paced moment of influence where there is no appreciation for the waters underneath, for where things are still. You know, like as we go deeper in the water, it gets really still and, and it's not moving, and there's that peace there, unless a shark fucking bites your leg off, but there's this, uh, you know, the stillness and as we get up top that's where the current is and it drifts you and it slaps you and it and it's just constantly changing and that's where everybody is looking so i think that i don't know i mean i don't have a shit ton of followers but for me there's so much more than that by researching your history by exploring the arts of other cultures by taking from different things that not everybody everybody's drinking from the same cup right now yeah absolutely I found your choice of moving to Costa Rica very brave and, uh, you know, and I supported it because, you know, you were working at that point in New York in one of the most established shops with, you know, very talented people and you made this change, which is a bit of a jump in the dark as well. But because I know you, I know that the roots of this change, tell me if I'm wrong, like you mentioned, are not just about work. It's about, you know, self-discovery process and, and perhaps following certain paths for your life, which spread beyond just tattooing. Yeah. Uh, well, it was really hard when I got to New York after, because I, I came there directly after the travels and all the things that I had picked up and my, you know, new philosophies on tattooing to going into kind of a strict environment and uh, a very very success-orientated city, it started to really feel like it didn't click so well for me. And I wanted a bit more of a simpler life, full of more introspection or more time to just exist without the pursuit of stereotypical American success. Even though I look at these things and I think it's great, you know, I'd love to have a nice house and all of that. But yeah, that was part of it to, to kind of escape the mindset. And I love... I love the States, the United States, and I think it's, you know, one of the, the best countries in the world, but a part of me didn't really want to be there. I fell in love with other cultures and I just wanted a bit of discomfort in my life, a bit of simplification. And then, you know, I might've come for introspection, but then I ended up fucking just doing a shit ton of Coke and ketamine and just partying for, a couple of years until that just got to be too much. And now it's, now it has really led to the introspection. I had this idea that when I came to this place, I, maybe I would actually learn to be happy and kind of deal with these bouts of depression that I have at times, because I would be here with the woman that I loved and a place that I really wanted to live. But man, 
this place strips everything away is such little bullshit here. There's so little distraction that you are forced to face yourself and to deal with things that you don't want to deal with. And that has really begun to happen. And uh, I'm, you know, I, I'm sober now and I'm dealing with life on its own terms, which is a newer thing for me. And it's really beautiful. My wife and I split up and uh, that has forced me to go inward more, find things in myself. But I think it's easier to do that here than it is to do that other places because literally there's nothing to do. You could go surf, you could go eat at a restaurant, you can go to work. But there, or you, you know, once a night there's like a reggae show at the discotheque, which I've never been to. <laughs> you know, in New York, I could fill my time with everything, things I loved and miss a lot. But here, distractions, lots of yeah, distractions. tons of distractions. And even those are ways of avoiding. They're not only ways of avoiding. They're amazing. Like the Russian Turkish bathhouse in New York is like one of my top three favorite things in the world. And the Strand Bookstore in New York and. And San Francisco is fucking amazing and all the things. It's like living in a camp and all these different places are just tents that are having all these different events. And I miss a lot of these things a lot. It's really hard living here as an artist. I don't have access to supplies very easily. I wanted that discomfort, but sometimes the discomfort's too uncomfortable. And I, I think about going and living somewhere part-time where I can have easier access to supplies. Like if I run out of something, it is hard as fuck to get it here. And there's lessons in that, and I, I hang on to them. But I remember, I think, when I sent you the, the doll for the first project that I did, you know, with the charity yeah. thing. And I think to remember that you sent me the address to send it to, and the address was something along the lines of uh, the shop next to the bakery in front of the bank or something like that. <laughs> there was no street yeah. or something. It was like, yeah, there behind are no, the bank like, next to the bakery. It's like, what the yeah, fuck? Yeah, there's no addresses. Even in the city, like even in the fucking city of San Jose, the capital, there's no addresses. There's no numbers on the buildings. Everything is like 150 meters north of Banco Nacional. It's insane. I don't know how they could not incorporate. I can understand it here. No. 150 meters north of the crossroads next to the banana tree. But in the city, come on, just give it names and some numbers on the buildings. Life would be so much easier. I went to Costa Rica once a few years ago, and I remember San Jose being the fucking scariest of the places where I've been. This guy picked me up from the airport because I booked a hostel for the first two nights. And so I booked like a, a shuttle thing to bring me to the hostels, like 20 bucks. And when I landed, I was so happy because... You have a bunch of taxi drivers at the airport. They all try to grab you. And I read in the, in the book, don't take them, you know, don't go with them because some of them rob you, bring you somewhere, stab you, whatever. And I was glad that I did that because they all look like Machete, the guy from Machete, dude. Ah. <laughs> I was like, fuck. And I remember this guy in the shuttle, you know, driving to the, I was the only person that day driving me to the hostel. I speak Spanish, so it was, you know, uh, open. And it was like, um, is it okay if we go through the city? Don't worry, we're safe. Everybody knows me. I'm like, why do you need to say that? <laughs> and then I remember this tour. He gave me a proper tour. It was like, you see that guy? Like, yeah. Yeah, that guy, they call him La Muerte. It's like, why? Yeah, because he robbed people and stabbed them in the heart. I'm like, oh, sweet. And you see that parking lot? You see that parking lot? It's like, yeah. Yeah, a couple of years ago, not anymore. There used to be this uh, gang of kids, 16 years old. They, they, they called themselves Los Hijos del Diablo, the son of the devil. I'm like, uh, why? 
Yeah, because they would rob people and then write shit on the walls with their blood. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> and you see that guy? He's a crack addict. They had a guy in the front of the street, you know, in front of him. They're together. They're waiting. So they, they robs you. And then I'm like, what the fuck? Man? Like, scary as yeah. Dude, very, very interesting play. We have yeah. a house here in town. So, like, our town is just one dirt road that runs along the ocean. And then on the other side is the jungle. And we're about six hours from the capital where you were. There was a fisherman here years ago who found a bale of cocaine or like a kilo of cocaine floating in the ocean and he took it and he sat on it for years and then started to sell it off. And then I don't know how much longer later, some people came and uh, hired him to take them out fishing and they killed him, threw him overboard. Then they came back and they tore his house down and his house is still torn down at the end of the road. It's just a pile of rubble. And as far as I can, yeah. (laughs) That's a good lesson to bring with you, you know? If you find cocaine, leave it. <laughs> leave it alone. Totally. One of, uh, Eric that I work with, his dad's a, a boatman. And if he ever found it, he would just weigh it and sink it down so that nobody would ever get it because it would only cause problems. It's really like a no country for old men kind of scenario. You know? <laughs> wow. And yeah. uh, what are you looking forward to in the immediate future artistic-wise? Like, um, you know, I know you always have projects, you're working on a book, you write and stuff. Yeah, that's my main uh, project at the moment is I'm, I'm writing this book and uh, I'm trying to do 108 chapters. They're not super long chapters, but at the moment I've got like 140 pages and 21 chapters written. So uh, I got a ways to go. But just started a little writer's workshop with two other guys in town. So twice a month we'll meet up and and we can critique each other's writing and give each other some ideas and pointers. So that's my main goal. I have no idea whether it's going to come out good or not. I think there's some good stuff in there. But really the most important thing is that I just do it. I have to do it. What I hope is that it can uh, make it out into the world in a big way, whether it's this book or it's not. At, at some point, I hope to become a published author. I've got an idea for a screenplay or, or, or a story that involves tattooing, which I'll work on after this one. And uh, that's it. I'm just fucking exercising, trying to get fit, trying to lose my love handles for the first time in my life, get strong. <laughs> Other than that, it's, it's mainly just writing and self-development. I'm trying to build myself up into the best version of myself that I can be. You know, I tend to chunk things. So like last year I had a client commission me to do some paintings for his house, some big, big modern art paintings. And when I did that, I took the month off of work and I just did that. And I'm kind of doing that with, with writing this book. You know, the quarantine is a perfect time to do it. That's starting to come to an end. The shop can open, but I'm just gonna try to do appointments to get by so that I can put all my energy into the book mainly. Yeah, one day at a time, right? Yeah. Um, I just wanted to, I wanted to share what happened to me over the past month. That's cool. Of course. So my wife and I split up probably like three months ago, and we're still very close, and we love each other a lot, which made the breakup way harder, I think. <laughs> um, and then I went and saw you in Europe. We got to hang out in France as the world started to shut down and deal with the virus. And I was forced to come home, and I, I, I think I was actually still supposed to be traveling today. And I really didn't want to come home because I was going to have to come home to be in this small town with her, and I was having a really hard time letting go. 
So then when I got home, I had to go into isolation and she, she found me this little Airbnb to stay in. And I got there and there was a really nice note from her and a fresh pot of hot coffee and a croissant. And she brought my typewriter and it was the sweetest thing. And I was like, fuck, man, why do you have to be so sweet? This is horrible. And then I was there for, was it, you got to be self-isolated for, what was it, 15 days or something? Yeah, a couple of weeks. Yeah. So I was there and I just started to go down, man. I, I started to get really, really down. I had my birthday there and just started to feel really lonely. And I started to get really suicidal and just was convinced that I wasn't going to make it out of this life without killing myself. If it wasn't in that moment that it was going to be at some other point, because I've had these constant up and downs through my life of, and these extremes of thinking that I'd figured something out that I've attained whatever it was that I needed to attain that was going to finally make me okay. And I realized after, I don't know, a week and a half of, of really wallowing and going down that there was some part of me that was intent on my destruction, whether that was imminent or just me being miserable and not fulfilling the things that I need to fulfill to be okay and to feel good. So I started meditating again and started exercising. It's really easy for me to exist in the head and not in the body. So I had to bring myself into the body. And then gradually I started to feel better. I started to wonder what I was finding in Julia that I wasn't finding in myself. And I realized that she brought that stability to me because I had always been so tumultuous and up and down. I never found that in myself. So I'm working on attaining that. During the isolation, I told her we couldn't talk. So we stopped talking for a while. And then uh, I started talking to her again. And then I moved into a new apartment and I'm doing really well. I'm doing all the stuff I have to do in the morning. And then one day I just start crying for a bit. And I, I just watched it come. The meditation was really helping to just watch thoughts go, not so much. And I, I felt the tears come and I let them come. I was like, this is interesting. It was just sad. And I got in the shower, started crying and then just cried for a little while. Then the next day I cried for like two hours. And I just watched it come and I was like, fuck, this is crazy. And then the next day, I must have cried for like five or six hours. I woke up in the morning and it was like a fucking train just coming at me. And I just felt it coming and I was like, fuck, I got to move. So I threw my, my shoes on and I walked up this really steep hill, just sobbing, like ugly, ugly, snotty tears. And I'm climbing the hill and I'm just letting it come. And I come back to the house and I fucking... I make some coffee and I'm crying in the coffee and I I go and I meditate while I'm crying and I'm still crying. And then after I'm meditating, I'm like, are you fucking serious? How is this still going? And it went on like five or six hours. At some point I had to call my buddy who came over. Uh, and when my dog died a year or two ago, he was like, if you ever need me, if you ever just need to cry, you can call me. So I called him he came over and he fucking held me while I was crying. And we talked for a while. He left. I just started bawling again. And then I called Julia and I asked her what it was like or what I said that it was really hard to see that she was doing OK. That was really difficult for me to see that she was doing OK. She said that when we first broke up, I was really busy with work and I threw myself into work and that, that was all I was doing for like a month. And I barely took any time to feel any of it. And that during that time, she was going through her grieving process, and it was really hard for her. And then uh, I asked her when she thought it started to, to break. And when we were in Nepal for the tattoo convention and that earthquake hit, 
an earthquake killed 10,000 people and it really terrified her, terrified all of us, but it affected her for years to come. And I couldn't show up to be a comfort for her. I didn't know how to show up for her to, to care for her when she was scared. And that really hit me. I called my mom after, and I'd never call my mom because my mom was an alcoholic when I was growing up and she was really scary. And I had to take care of her to make sure that it wasn't gonna come to me. I had to care for my mother. So I started bottling all my feelings up as a kid and I never really let myself feel them. And then I call my mom and I tell her what Julia said that I had never been able to show up, you know, her husband to be there that she could go to and lean on. And my mom was like, oh, it makes total sense how, you know, you were just such a young boy and I was so scary and your body just took over and you learned to shut down. It was so nice to talk to her about that and to hear her acknowledge that and to just be able to be vulnerable with her. I cried some more that day and then I fell asleep at like seven. And the next morning I woke up and I felt this emptiness, kind of the base of my stomach. Some of the tears the day before felt like they came from so, so deep within me that they felt so old that it wasn't anything to do with Julia, that it was like my childhood, that it was like the lineage of my family that it was just so intense, like I was exercising something. It was crazy. So the next morning I woke up and I actually looked down at my stomach. I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like feeling it, like, where, where is it? And it was, and it was gone. And uh, I really feel all this work that I've had to do over the years of trying to be okay, of, of, of trying to learn how to deal with this, these feelings and these depression bouts through therapy, through hypnotherapy, through transcendental meditation, through ayahuasca, through acid, through fucking DMT, you name it. I, I have a list of all the different things I've tried over the years. And it seems like the answer was really within, you know, that I had to allow myself to actually feel and allow myself to allow these things to come without numbing them out. And what it felt like was that the base of my gut had become like this rock hard mud that had solidified and no lasting feelings of contentment could come out of it. Nothing could grow out of it because it was like bad, just tar. And nothing could sink past it. And I felt like that broke up and started to move and I was able to go into it. And it was uh, like a really significant moment in my life. And just, I think, pretty beautiful. And, uh, and now... Like I thought all the work I was doing in my head was going to make me better, but it's not in my head, it's in my body. And that's where I'm spending my time now. Yeah, so, thank you for sharing. Yeah. It's crazy how, you know, emotions and traumas can affect us physically. Like you said, your stomach and all of that. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I believe that even more serious issues, you know, like cancer, not, not only but they can get affected by or created or, you know, changed by your emotional state. Like you say, years and years of repression, you know, and they oh, get man. stored somewhere, you know. And Totally. And it's not even, it's completely subconscious. It's like a physiological reaction to, you know, that fight or flight mechanism. If your parents were abusive or if they were scary and, and just as a little baby, you're learning to react to that and protect these parts of yourself or how to wear a mask to, you know, so that everything is going to be okay. You know, I mean, whatever it is. We, and, you know, some people, I think, 
seems like some people get to make it out of this life without having too many of these things, but some of us have had a lot. And I suspect that a lot of us that have ended up in the tattoo community have had our share of these things, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. I really like something that I was reading from Jung. And he says, you're going to find the thing you need the most in the place you want to look the least. Yeah. It's the same thing everywhere, even on a physical level or what or the practices. But like you were saying, it takes discipline to to face that darkness and, and let it be instead of yeah. it's so easy to escape or, or repress or hide or, you know what I mean? Yeah, like we want to head towards the discomfort. And that was always what was so attractive to me about psychedelics was this idea that they were going to make me face something that I wasn't aware of or that I couldn't comprehend and that would really scare me in the moment, but I would have to go towards it or have to deal with it. In the end, that's not what it took to get there, which really surprised me. You know, it was just... Yeah, we're always heading heading within. Yeah. If you might think back about an advice you've been given, not necessarily related to tattooing, something that you carry with you and helped you and you you often go back to that and you find it beneficial what would that be one uh breathe into your belly like actually breathe deep into your stomach really good for grounding and for being present that therapist i saw told me to ask myself three questions am i awake right now am i here right now am i okay right now those have been helpful um I think the other thing is to just observe, to just observe what's happening and realize that, that your thoughts aren't you, that you're not your thoughts, that you're not your body, that there's something else inside. And uh, to disassociate yourself with, with these things in some way. And then Rick Luter in Australia told me some great stuff. He said, the best way to approach life is like a duck. They got those water-resistant feathers and the water just hits them and it just flies off and hits the duck behind them. And that's the best way to approach life. You just keep going forward. I like nice. that a lot. <laughs> nice. If you could somehow go back and talk to yourself when you were a dead age, right? When you were scared of your mom, you know, before your real life started, so to speak. And if you could talk to yourself with the things you know now, with after this, you know, years of insights and understanding, what would you tell yourself? Uh, I would tell myself to have the courage to be you, have the courage to be yourself, that nobody else can do that. And I would have taught myself to have gone into my body more really making a conscious effort to be the person for the people that I needed when I was younger. And I was fucking lost. I was, uh, you know, I didn't have a dad around and I was, grew up in a really chaotic household that was scary. And I needed, I needed a source of stability. I needed somebody to tell me that things were going to be okay, that, that I was okay. And as much as I can now with, with anybody that I meet that's, that's younger than me or that, uh, you know, is having a hard time, I share everything that I've learned. And I've learned so much because I had to, to try to be okay. So I don't, I don't know. It, it would be hard to, to boil it down to one thing. But I guess it would just be present, stay in the now, and uh, don't spend too much time in the future or in the past. To work with your resentments. 
Awesome. I know you a little bit, but I always wanted to pick your brain because the way I see you, you have this sensitivity which reflects on different levels and sometimes can give you that artistic insight, sometimes can bring you in these dark places, but it's definitely something that is you. You know, it's unique yeah. to you and uh, it's it, like everything is a blessing, a curse. And I think it, we learn to live with it, you know. Yeah. And I hope I see you soon and uh, in a less post-apocalyptic scenario. <laughs> oh, there's one other thing I would say. To, to be an artist, you don't have to be miserable. Or you don't have to be miserable to make good art, which is something I totally believed. And I want to give some book recommendations. Yeah, please do. So... Austin Maples turned me on to this book called Taming Your Gremlin, and it is so fucking good. And any advice that I would give to my younger self would come from that book. It's fucking so simple and so beautiful. What is it about? So, you know how I was talking about that shadow self that I feel like I've got that everybody has their own gremlins, and those gremlins are the source of our negative thoughts, our, our cycles of belief and how easy it is for us to have these cycles of belief that are negative and we're never conscious of them. You know, these things that tell us you're too fat, your dick's too small, your nose is too big, your back's too hairy, your tits are too small, whatever, that we're never conscious of it. And the first step of doing it is being able to observe when those thoughts come and to be able to separate yourself from them. So you start to see these things that come up and these, the same story that you tell yourself over and over, and you just watch it, and you just observe it. And then the second step is that you just breathe, you breathe into your belly, and you breathe out, and you breathe in, you breathe out, and you just watch these things, and you realize that, that, that those thoughts, these negative things that we believe in myself, oh, I'm such a fucking idiot, I'm never gonna be any good, I'm always gonna be like this, I'm never gonna be good with money, I'm never gonna be good in relationships, I always self-sabotage. All these things have been going for fucking ever and we're not conscious of it. So then we start to observe it and realize that those are not ourself, that we are not our thoughts, that we're not our body. And that, so we, we breathe into our belly, we come into our body and then we, he talks about this magical sheath of skin that we have and that the entire world, our entire world exists within this sheath of skin. Everything that we perceive, everything that we feel, all of our interpretations, all of our realizations, all of our visions of the world, they all happen within this frame of our body. Feel the sensations of, on your skin, whether it's sweat trickling down your back or a little bit of breeze blowing on it. And these things help bring us into the body. And then we're more able to observe what's happening in the mind with these thoughts. And just that process of realizing that those thoughts are not you and they're not ingrained into you. They're just things that we've started to believe over time. I'm really curious as to where those ideas come from and why, we're, why we have to deal with these things. But that's been really awesome. The name again of that book? Taming Your Gremlin. Perfect. And then I would recommend Shantaram, which is a really awesome novel big book, but even Julia, who hasn't read many books over the course of our relationship, she read that thing in like two weeks. It's amazing. It's all about love and forgiveness and acceptance and adventure nice. in India. And then Letters from a Stoic by Seneca. It's really yeah. fabulous. And uh, Conquest of Happiness by Bertrand Russell. Really fantastic. Lots of uh, food for the mind on this one. 
Yeah. So, yeah, I like to, you know, when people share their process and their resources, because then hopefully can help others, you know, which are in the same, which we're all in the same boat, really, on different extent, even if, you know, yeah. we admit it or not, but we're all in the same boat. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that it will help. Well, thanks so much, man. I was really looking forward to this. I'm glad we did it now rather than when we were in France because I was in a pretty rough spot then. But you see what's funny because, you know, without sounding too hippie, but sometimes I do believe that things work in a certain way because they have to work that way. So perhaps the fact that, you remember, I brought my microphone, I brought everything, and then it didn't happen. And that's the way it had to be. Perhaps that's exactly the thing. You had to go through this process so now you could see Dude. things in a certain way. Totally. It's so wild. Like, you know, during that, those days of crying, I, uh, and I actually had read Eat, Pray, Love during that time, which was a fucking great book. And there's a lot about faith in that. And, you know, I started going to AA a bit and there's all this talk of God. And I ended up actually coming back to this idea of God and this idea of letting go. And I've tried to direct my own life and it hasn't really worked so far. So I could use some help and I'll take some help if, if whatever's out there. And I even imagine just as being mankind's active imagination, created of the need for humanity to have some source of comfort for the future, some source of comfort for the moments of heartbreak and, and loss that we experienced through being alive, that man needed to develop God to be a source of this, this comfort. And I'm okay with that. I went from absolutely hating the idea of God and religion to coming around to this place where I'm praying every day. And for the first time in my life, or I don't know, I, for the first time I feel really okay saying that what is meant to be will be and that it's all gonna work out as it should and uh, really can trust in that. And it's really about a focal point the way I see it. You know, it's a focal point for good, you know, to support you, to guide you, you know, into doing the right thing or the thing that is best for you at times, like you said, accepting yep. certain, and it's just a focal point, then it doesn't matter how the fuck you call it. You know, some people sometimes get too stuck on names and definitions which are man-made, you know. This is totally. just an, et an eternal concept of good and struggle, you know. Then yeah, and it was just different cultures, different cultures of different, you know, people in different circumstances coming up with, different ways of imagining the same thing. It's like that, uh, you know, the parable of the elephant and the blind men. Yeah, with the different doors and... Yeah, they're all feeling the different parts of the elephant and each of them is super convinced that they know what it is, but they can't see the overall thing. And that's, meditation kind of seems like, like we're created of this, whether it was a conscious being or not that created the world, that created us, that brought us into this experience. And through that act of breathing and meditation, we can come into that place that's separate from our mind and our body. And that source is ultimately what the belief leads us to, you know, yeah. and it exists in us, which is great. Yeah, just be kind and especially be kind to yourself, you know, whatever, whoever says that, you know, there's no yeah. copyright on that. Yeah. I'm really happy you, you're finding a way out of the tunnel. Yeah. Me too. Nice. For the first time, I really feel like uh, that I'm okay. You know, I had thought that so many times, but it was always with my head, and this feels so different. And now it's time to hopefully share, and hopefully I can be of some service. It's funny, because we always are, 
even sometimes we don't recognize it. You know, you might say something to somebody, you you forget about it. Cool. Awesome, bro. Enjoy your day. Right. Enjoy your evening. We'll talk soon. Bye, bro. Much love. Bye.